Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about software sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why do I always ask these really inane questions from the 18th century French artist Matisse? Is it even Matisse? It might be Gauguin. I really don't even know. I don't know. Wow. Moving on. Really excited to talk to our guest today. We're going to be talking about toxicity in open source, among other things. If you're interested in toxicology, there are other podcasts for that. This is about open source communities. Before we introduce our two guests, I want to make sure that you also know who else is on this podcast helping to host. I'm, of course, Richard Littauer. Hey, hi. Yeah, that's me. And we also have on this podcast, Errol. Errol Fox, as they sometimes go by. Errol, how are you doing? Hello, I'm okay. I'm good. It's gotten colder here now. The heat wave has passed, I think, in the UK, so I'm pleased. Thank you for saying in the UK. I would never have guessed you were British if you hadn't mentioned that the weather has a small topic. Anyway, that aside, very excited to talk to our two guests today. We have Courtney Miller and Hongbo Fang. They're both joining us from Pittsburgh, lovely Pittsburgh, which I assume is as beautiful as it is here in Vermont. Sunny today, kind of nice, but still that really nasty humidity. I can talk about the weather too, Errol. It's pretty great. They're both PhD students. We asked them on because we were curious about their work. And they came highly recommended by Bogdan Vasilescu, whose name I constantly mispronounce. I'm sorry about that, Bogdan, who has also been on this podcast before. Check the show notes for those episodes. So with no further ado, because that was already a lot of me talking, how are you both doing? Hongbo, how are you? Thank you for coming on. Pretty good here. And the weather is actually very nice. Yes, I'm sorry you're in a dark room. Courtney, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And yeah, I mean, if y'all like to talk about the weather, like we could just do that for 40 minutes if you want, because I am so excited that everything is cooling down, but the humidity is still disrespectful here. It's super disrespectful. I'd actually rather talk about the fact that you have a dog in your lap, which is amazing because with humidity that like adds to the heat index in the immediate environment, but it's worth it. Yeah. She's the brains behind the entire operation. So she could not be here really. What's her name? Her name is Chanel. I've had her since I was in middle school and she's in all the videos for my talks and everything because I couldn't do it without her. That is awesome. What sort of talks does Courtney mean? That is a good question. Courtney, you recently gave a highlighted talk on um, award-winning work, which is pretty cool, on toxicity in open source communities at the Linux Open Source Summit of North America, which was in Austin, Texas. Apparently, it was very hot there. Can you tell us a bit about what that talk was about? Yeah, so that talk was about some work I did with my lab where we were interested in kind of understanding how open source toxicity appears because we know what toxicity looks like on a bunch of different platforms, but we don't have a solid understanding, at least empirically, of what it looks like. So that was the main heart of what we were trying to explore with that paper. What did you find? So we found that toxicity on open source platforms or in their communities tends to look different because if you think about Twitter, for example, right, we have things like firestorms, personal harassment, Stack Overflow, they get mad at you for saying thank you. It looks different. And on each of these platforms, to deal with it most effectively, to have these good identification and intervention strategies, we need to know what we're dealing with, what we're identifying, what we're addressing. And so we found that in open source, there's a lot of entitlement. There's a lot of insult. There's a lot of arrogance coming from users of open source projects, but there's also toxicity coming from authors and maintainers of open source that appear to be frustrated by the interactions they're having. So we actually found some pretty interesting stuff. Can you talk to me a bit about the data set which you use to find this information? I'm curious because when we talk about open source, sometimes we mean GitHub, sometimes we mean the rest of the world. So I'm just curious, what did you use? So we did look specifically at GitHub. 
One of the really fun, and by fun, I mean hard things about this project was we were trying to figure out what open source toxicity looks like, but because there hasn't been a study like this before, there wasn't an existing data set. Like we didn't actually know what it looked like. So a big challenge was identifying our sample. And so what we ended up doing was using five different identification strategies, looking for projects that are issues that have been locked as too heated, things that had been deleted, mentions of codes of conduct. And we collected together this sample of 100 issues that we identified as being toxic. And we studied their characteristics through qualitative content analysis. Awesome. So this is work which has been co-done by, I assume, your advisors, which is Bogdan Vasilescu and also Christian Kestner. One of the questions I have for Hongbo, so Hongbo Fang, you are not a toxicologist in open source. That's a different field. What you focus on is information flow. And what's really cool is that you focus specifically on where do people talk about open source? Were you involved in this work at all or do you have any thoughts on it so far? I personally don't involved in this work, but we think at least in the future, there was some very interesting potential overlap between my work and the colonist work because I'm studying the discussion space of open source developers and when or where developers discuss open source, which is an area that we can study the toxic comment and the toxic discussion. When you talk about where people talk about open source, what I'm trying to do is figure out whether a hundred issues talking about toxic behavior on GitHub is representative of open source. Now, I have a hunch that it's not. It's great for a paper. And Courtney, I'm not trying to say your paper is irrelevant or anything. It's a wonderful start. But I'm curious how that might have been improved a priori with Hongbo's work. So Hongbo, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think Connie and I mostly work on different academic approaches to solve problems. For example, Connie focused more on this so-called qualitative work where they get a sample of projects and they manually sample projects or issues and then they manually look at the content of those discussions. But for me, I work more on the quantitative side of research where we get a much larger set of samples or discussions and we look at the large scale characteristics of those discussions. So one way that we can potentially get an even larger set of discussions and get identify those who have toxic comments is that we can use those natural language processing techniques that we can use a model to train the model to identify how to identify those toxic comments in this open source related discussion so that we can get a large, even larger sample so that we can do more quantitative understanding. I love that. And sentiment analysis and that sort of thing, like NLP of those issues would be informed by Courtney's work. So Courtney, can you tell me a bit about what you saw within those hundred issues? Like how did you break down that A, these were toxic and how did you tag them? I'm just really curious about the methodology used to get to the conclusions you have. So before we did any of the qualitative analysis on them, we confirmed by having multiple of our researchers on the team identify and agree that these toxic, these comments were toxic. So we did that before we analyzed them. And then we used, it's called qualitative content analysis. Essentially what we did was what we were looking for is the characteristics of toxicity on a high level. And so we wanted to find essentially like the who, what, when, where, why kind of of what toxicity looks like in open source, because the goal of this project was to get a preliminary understanding of what toxicity looks like. So we identified things like we found the triggers, like what triggered the toxic comment? Was it an error? Was it past interaction? Was it a technical disagreement on what to do on a feature or a bug? We looked at who was the author of it. We found who was the target of the toxicity. Was that the code? Like this stupid code doesn't work. Or was it like, you're stupid. You don't know how to code. Shut up, maintainer. 
you know, what all these different characteristics was what we identified in the data. So I'm really curious. This might be a bit of a tangent, but that sounds tough. And it sounds tough to me because in general, the ethical frameworks in which we use within open source are informed by our cultural background and by our understanding of what is actually right and good. And those are largely informed by having been in these communities already and before. So a 4chan open source group, which probably exists, would have very different norms and toxicity would be difficult to gauge there because that's just how it works. Now, you could argue that the entire community is toxic and I wouldn't disagree with you, just to be clear. But I'm really curious, how did you decide what is toxic or not besides just having three researchers be like, yeah, that seems toxic to me? Like what sort of qualitative recusal did you do to say, well, yeah, but also we noticed that all three of the researchers here are Western industrialized, rich, democratic, probably white male. No offense if they're not. And I hope they weren't, but that's just a thing. I'm just really curious. How did you inform those decisions about what toxicity actually means in this context? So we used definition, just the technical definition of toxicity introduced by Google's Perspective API tool, which I could find somewhere, but essentially it's defined as rude, disrespectful, or unreasonable language that is likely to make someone leave a discussion. And we went off of that individually beyond having multiple researchers individually define it. We didn't do anything beyond that. And that's something that I think is really important to mention when we're talking about this research is that this research is by no means a categorization or a catalog of all of what toxicity looks like in open source. It is not representative. And I think that's something we talk about that in the paper, obviously, but for the sake of this podcast, right, this is not fully representative. We tried to identify identity diverse sample, but we use our own definition. We use our own judgment. We had high inter-rater reliability when classifying things as toxic, but that's still limited to the three researchers, the four researchers who did classify it. So what the real hope of this research is, is to start a conversation about this and to hopefully have people look at this and be like, oh, wait, but I could do that better. What about this other thing? So we just kind of wanted to start a conversation, but we really want to make it clear this is not representative fully. Thank you for doing this research in this paper. I had a really great time reading it. I also had a great time sharing it with some of the TTRPG, tabletop RPG community, because they use a lot of open source tools. And I think that it's a really interesting space. There is a lot of questions and a lot of chat happening about this paper, y'all. So if you want to see some excitement, let me know. Also a lot of questions, but I feel like I have less questions and more like conversation things that I want to explore with you both. So pardon if my questions seem more conversational. One of the things I'm really interested in, given that I work in the human rights space for technology and human rights, is something that I worked on with a person called Kat Lowe, who works at Medan for a while. And I'm by no means an expert in moderation, content moderation, but Kat Lowe, to some extent, has done a lot of work Medan around content moderation and the effects that moderating offensive content has on individuals or even just being exposed to offensive content has on individuals. And a lot of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading this paper were a lot of the things that came up in the conversations about like, what are the long-term effects of toxic, quote unquote, however we end up categorizing toxic behavior is on the people long-term and how perhaps like the, I'm really curious to, or really interested that one of the criteria for toxicity is that somebody leaves a discussion, but we, I'm curious to know what happens to these people after they leave a discussion. What impact does that toxicity have on their lives? How much they view open source generally? And I'm curious to know whether you've had thoughts or 
intentions of looking into the content moderation space to see if there's any similarities between what's happening there. Yeah. So when we started the research for this project, one thing that was really important to us was that open source toxicity is not new. It's very old, right? Unfortunately, it's widely prevalent. So there is already, as you mentioned, so much good work and so many very smart people working very hard on dealing with toxicity in various platforms. Yeah. So we intentionally made a very targeted effort at studying toxicity and how people deal with it on other platforms. So yes, absolutely. In the future, we looked at how people deal with moderation on Twitter, how people deal with moderation on Facebook, how people deal with moderation on Stack Overflow and some other platforms. And I think that the long-term effects of this toxicity, especially in open source, was a lot of why at least I was really moved to do this research because I think that we've heard the colloquialism and we've heard from our friends and our fellow colleagues who do open source maintenance about the taxing and wearing conversations that they have and how it stresses them out. It causes burnout. They want to leave. In a lot of cases, there's very high profile cases of people leaving because of this negativity. And so that was kind of exactly why we cared about studying this. Unfortunately, because this was just a first step in a long, and hopefully what is a long line of this kind of research, we did not get to thoroughly study what the long-term effects are. But we did even within our conversations that we did study, see that there were like, people seemed taxed informally. People seem very taxed They would often be like, listen, why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? Like, I'm just trying to help. They would have solid, really trying. They would receive a toxic comment and then they would try to, in good faith, deal with it. And so we saw a lot of stress and it was very unfortunate. And we absolutely hope that this work continues and studies that further, the long-term effects and how it wears on people. So I love that. This is the best and awesome and super relevant. And yes, this does happen. And we've been knowing it for years. What's great about academics is that you're going out there and saying, listen, this is how the world is. You can like cite this now. This isn't like, I wonder if that's how it is. No, this is it. So that's excellent. Problem is that a lot of people who may be listening to this podcast are also practitioners and practitioners work at a different time scale than academia. And so this might be a weird question and it might not work, but what can we do to improve the state of toxicity in open source. Do you have any suggestions for the paper? Do you have any like future work that you're really excited on that might shed light on how we can make this better? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a few things. I know that there are already some directives of people who are trying to build automated classifiers. But I think that one thing that I've learned from the discussions that I've had and that we've observed for this project and also with other projects we're talking to open source maintainers is that bots and and other things that help automate the dealing with these kinds of things can be very helpful. Like if you can identify toxic comments and deal with them instead of making the maintainers have to spend the emotional labor every time of dealing with that sort of stuff can be very helpful. One thing that we saw was very interesting and at least went against my own initial hypothesis was that the fact that maintainers were often toxic in their own projects, but it was almost always in response to another comment. And it almost always had what we interpreted as clear signs of frustration. Either the person didn't follow the issue template correctly, or they were being very entitled, what we interpret as entitled or something like that. And so I think that helping create more tools, like we have issue templates, right? What about issue response templates? Hey, you actually didn't follow our template. If you could go back and review it, something concrete like that. There are definitely some ideas, but I think there's even more to come, hopefully. Love the idea of issue response templates. I know some people who would immediately jump on that. I use something similar already with like text expander just to automatically just throw stuff in so I don't have to think about it every single time. So that's great. 
Before I ask my next question, which is actually about maintainers and a few other things, I'd love to know what Hong Fang thinks about the future and things that we can do to solve this. Like maybe more from a, well, if you want a quantitative, take the quantitative angle, I'd love to hear. Yeah, from a research perspective, I think I would be interested in, for example, the scale of toxic comments in the overall, like the entire set of discussion samples we have. And also when the people are more likely to express their concerns in a toxic way and what are the factors we can use to identify or predict the appearance of those toxic comments and we can address those issues based on the predictors we identify based on these quantitative variables. That sounds super cool. I can't wait for a lot of these things to happen. I was really disappointed in 2011, 2012, when I looked at the state of NLP for sentiment analysis for seeing whether or not something was toxic or whether or not you were able to actually judge things using machine learning. It's just simple, like based upon your work, has AI improved in the past 10 years? Has it gotten better? Because it really just wasn't good enough for me. So I do have hope. Do you? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hope. Google's perspective API tool is, I think, really great detecting certain kinds of toxicity. And I think that there's new tools currently being built and new research happening on this every day. But I am fully confident. I think that one thing that makes open source toxicity very specific is it's often not just direct harassment. It's often not just direct hate speech. It's much more contextual, which might require a different sort of detection method, right? It's more conversational. It's more passive aggressive. It's more entitled, which is a little more nuanced and a little more complicated. So at a high level, I think that there's a lot of hope for bots and automatic detection of toxicity online. I think specifically for open source toxicity, at least based on our preliminary findings, it might require something a little more nuanced, but still hopeful, yeah. I don't know if Hongo wants to answer this. Sure, sure. Actually, I have the discussion with Connie and we had this idea that we may not be able to directly apply NLP, existing NLP models to the open source context because it's, as Connie said, it's very contextual and the word or norms they use in open source may be different from the general social media discussion. But we have seen some promising work in many fields that we use NLP model and techniques to measure those nuanced uh, concepts or elements in discussion. For example, in the world of social media discussion that people measure the amount of certainty, the, their framings of scientific findings in social media discussion. Or we can measure extent of humor in online discussion. So we have those successful experience before. And so I'm confident that in the future, we should be able to produce a model that is suitable to identify the toxic comments in open source specific discussion. So this wouldn't be an episode that I host on if I didn't bring up a specific question around design. So apologies to all the listeners that listen to episodes that I host. So as I was reading the paper, I was really curious about all the, as probably you were, all the things that it didn't mention. Like there are so many different things that can go in and this is definitely not in any way, you can only cover so much in a paper, right? I know those feels. But I'm really curious to know like how we might begin to research, how we might begin to notice and how the community also might begin to help researchers by like, in what ways can we start to talk about behaviors that are harder to detect? So things that are less obvious. So I guess when I was reading stuff or listening to stuff about the maintainers and their behaviors, there are some things that I've seen maintainers do that are, I guess you could categorize as passive aggressive. Like, so they're not overtly toxic. They're hard to detect, but there are like behaviors which you'd be like, huh, okay. 
I feel bad about that behavior. And additionally to this, about the design side of things, there there are lots of different things that are growing in open source. And one of them is the design side of things, like lots and lots of designers doing design in open source spaces. And one of the things that we've always had a hard time with as designers in open source is it's not correct code or incorrect code in that kind of black and white way of looking. Because design has a lot of different kinds of ways of having opinions, thoughts, preferences, lots of different ways in which you can say whether it's good or not. And actually quite a lot of it is really about a delicate balancing of social facilitation within that. So I'm really curious to know. So the question was, how can community members across all different functions help you as researchers by like maybe talking about some of the things that are less obvious, I guess you could say, or less kind of referenced in the paper. And how might you think about tackling like some of the harder to read bits of toxicity within like new emerging spaces? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I like to say that you mentioned that as you were reading it, you thought of all these things and that's like the exact hope that at least I had when I was writing this paper, because it really is like, you are entirely right. There's so much more that we simply do not cover. And the hope is really that people see that and they're inspired and they do something better than what we did. They explore in a different direction. They go and they, like you were talking about passive aggression and that happening in maintainers and how people can help. I think really just talking about it is very helpful. As researchers, we are also very mindful of what we ask of maintainers. For example, when we were designing this study, we mentioned it in the paper, but we were intentional in choosing to study toxicity by looking at pre-existing things that we could identify ourselves rather than reaching out to maintainers and asking them to talk to us about their experiences with toxicity, because that can be very triggering. That can be very stressful for people. So we're like, for a preliminary study, we're just going to look at pre-existing public artifacts. But, you know, moving forward, I think that there could certainly be more like interview based, more discussion based explorations of this. And I think that really conversation has been like, at least for me personally, the way that I've just learned the most is simply being able to listen to maintainers. I find to be an extreme privilege when they take the time to share their experiences. That is categorically the most valuable thing to my research. And so just like having conversations is not always easy, but I think that if one is in a position to have such conversations, they can be extremely constructive. In terms of tackling harder ideas, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I think that I just hope someone else reads this paper and is smarter and can come up with a new idea. Connie raised a very good point. And one short message, if I got to say, is for developers just to talk more, not only to talk to the researchers, but also talk more about the issues they face, the problems they have in open source communities on Twitter or in blogs. One fun, fun fact I can share is that I'm a researcher. So every time when I look for new research questions, I wanted to understand the open source community more. Of course, I will do literature review from, with Google Scholar. But the other two major source of information is Twitter discussion, open source related Twitter discussion, and also open the blogs from open source developers. So the basic idea is that I think as a researcher, it's not that we are leading the open source communities in terms of what they do, but it's more like the open source developers, they are the, in some way, pioneers of practice. And we are following what they are doing, what they are seeking, and we are trying to like reflection on what they have been done and think of like how we can get something insightful and generalized, generally beneficial to the entire community. 
I love that. That's beautiful. We definitely need to talk more as people doing stuff in open source for sure and the things that we experience. I know that open source diversity as a community group tended to talk a lot about what different people from different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of intersectionalities experienced within the space of open source. So I think that's potentially a good place to hang out. I'm also really curious about the ways that we, and I don't, this doesn't necessarily touch on the research, but maybe if you want to offer opinions or thoughts or your own feelings, but I'm really curious about like how, as Richard was saying at the beginning, like our own cultures, our own experiences and like the existing state of the world that we live in, like with the history of like colonialization and the history of like different nations being more powerful one another. And that kind of, again, I'm by no means an expert in that kind of thing, but like the way that systemic power is held by certain groups. And I'm wondering like if there ever is a place where like open source could have like restorative justice like spaces for around toxicity. And like, I wonder what the action is there for the open source community as a whole to kind of how we move from talking about our experiences of toxicity towards like, okay, and what's the way in which we heal? Question mark, whether that's the right word or the best word to use at the moment. We begin to heal like the urge to lean into toxicity in any way. Any yeah. methods you all know of that you think might be worth exploring? Um, well, I just wanted to say that I think that's a really good question. And I think that's one that I've thought about a lot as well. You know, I'm sure a lot of us have thought about it a lot. And from the conversations that I've had, it seems like, and the observations, it seems like a lot of it comes down to leadership. And it's like, if a community has leadership that tolerates certain things, it's going to happen. If the community has leadership that does not tolerate certain things, it's not going to happen. So I think it's really awesome when people kind of like amplify and support and use open source projects that have healthy communities that do not tolerate toxicity. When maintainers focus more, you know, your time and your effort is your power and you get to choose where you invest it. And so I think that being aware of like the communities that you're a part of and what they stand for. And, you know, if you're passionate about it, maybe even considering joining some sort of leadership position and helping change the way your communities focus and the way that they run. But I think that it's it's a really hard problem. And I think that it's a hard thing to solve. But I think that what we each accept and what we each choose to invest in has a lot of power. And yeah, that's my thoughts. I like that a lot. I also I want to point out that leadership and choosing where you put your energy are almost different things. And so one of them is like followership could also be part of how you have a good community, choosing where you follow, choosing where you invest your energy. And I like that a bit more because leadership for me always comes down to hierarchy, which always comes down to the fish rots from the head. But that's just Richard being incredibly anarchistic as always. So I'm sorry for bringing that up. But I love choosing where you invest your time. Totally yeah. with that. I do want to segue a tiny bit because we've talked a lot about this awesome paper that you've done, Courtney, but we haven't talked a lot about information flows. And I'm really curious, Hongwo, you say, yeah, I get myself in Google Scholar and Twitter discussions, but like, is that really the best place to get information in open source? Like, how do I find out about whether the community is toxic or not? Or how do I find out about just good open source packages that I want? Earlier, we talked about we should talk more and we should have one-on-one -on -one discussions more. One-on-one -on -one discussions are excellent for emotional alignment. They are atrocious for scale. And so, Hongwo, I'm curious, what does your work mainly focus on and how are you holding this space? 
Yes. So first of all, to answer your previous question, where does uh, open source commit, uh, open source developers discuss? And there has been a ton, a line of research discussing like the social media or the platforms they use to discuss open source related issues, activities, or to the promotion of open source projects. And we have found that developers use different platforms or channels to talk about a different aspect of open source lives. For example, Twitter, Hacker News are the two prominent platforms for open source related promotion. So they talk about the new projects they have or the interesting projects they found. And for Stack Overflow and Reddit as well, this is another other platforms that are mainly focused for issue or QA related discussion. So if they have a problem or they need technical support with a specific package, these are the platforms that they mostly use. And for me, what I'm focusing on is that, so we have all those different platforms, channels that are available for developers to discuss those issues. But for each different uh, platforms, they can only reach a set of people. And when we talk about a lot of problems related to the success of open source projects or the sustainability of open source projects, you know that not everyone can help with all the projects. For example, you need projects, you need for given projects, you need developers with the necessary skills or with the necessary resource and with necessary interest that we're be willing to invest in this project. So my research was more focused on one, does the current online discussion help researchers or help the developers to send those information to those people that have relevant skills, have the necessary resource and have the interest to invest or contribute to this project or invest, contribute or use this project. So that's number one question. Our number two question is, if not, which we see in a lot of cases, it's not always true that people will find the most relevant projects or most of the projects most interesting to them. And if not, how can we sort of change the information flow or find new approaches to help developers better identify those projects that need developer support and they are the right person to support it. That is awesome. Okay, cool. I want to get right to the good stuff. How can we best improve information flow? Like right now, the main thing I know is like what you just mentioned and also just readmes and it's just atrocious. So what suggestions do you have for the future for what we can do? And I'm guessing it's going to involve AI. I don't know. To some extent, yes. So there has been, in my perspective, at least the two major lines of research. One mostly focused on this automated recommendation, both for developers and for projects. So they can recommend the most relevant projects to you, or they can recommend to the project maintainers what are the other developers you may consider recruit because they have the relevant skills and may have interest in your project. So this is what's mostly recommendation algorithm related discussion or AI enabled tools. But the other approach was more like social, I would call it a social driven search, meaning that, for example, when you imagine we have a huge open source space where different developers know a set of projects and the different developers, they have their own personal connections. So they talk with other developers. So through these daily discussions, they not only talk with others, but they also have an understanding about both the technical aspect of some of the projects they know. They also have understanding of the other developers, like their developer friends in terms of what are their strengths and what are their 
like interest. So they can build connections between interesting projects and relevant people by making these recommendations or forward information, which is exactly why we're interested in the use of all the discussion of open source developers on Twitter. Because Twitter is, one, is an information diffusion platform. You can see a lot of people using Twitter for promotion or diffuse information. But also it's social network-based diffusion platform, meaning that you can retweet the relevant information. You can forward the relevant information to your friends. And sometimes we see people, if they see an interesting project, explicitly at their friends on Twitter, say, hey, this is a project that you, I think you should take a look at because it's quite relevant to what you are doing right now. So this is another approach which is study the social connection between people and how this social mechanism can help people find relevant projects. I love this. I My face is that of a person that is very excited about this, but also very interested in how it can work for me as somebody that is not a developer and that recommends projects to designers and designers to projects and all those kinds of things in between. And I think one of the things that isn't, apologies, not necessarily a question, but is a curio- curious thing that I've discovered in the work that I do is that if you don't know that your project needs something, you don't know how to recommend it or ask for it. So I'm always curious how these systems might be able to tell what they do not have without having somebody already in there that knows, oh, we haven't got great design because maybe there are a group of developers that have never really thought, which is completely legit up until this point, hey, we might need a designer. Like it's something that a lot of projects really don't think they need or maybe don't need. So I'm really curious to think about how those systems might be informed by the things that are absent as well as the things that are sort of already moving around in the social space. I think a quite relevant scenario I see based on my discussion with developers is that sometimes people have, for example, people may have a very vague idea in terms of what kind of opportunities they are looking for, or what kind of projects they are looking for. Or for project maintainers and the developers, they have a not so clear idea about what kind of people they need, what are the kind of problems with their projects, and what kind of support they need. And this is actually not only from the discussion, but also documents in past literature. So for those kind of problems, this is idea opportunity for those social-based search algorithms, as I said before, to step in because when people have those complicated situations and they have a hard time to decompose it into smaller pieces and can put it into a search automated machine learning based search algorithm, if they can't do that, they will naturally ask or refer to some of the experts they know in the field and they can help them to diagnose what are the problems is or what are the potential solutions we can try. And so that this is when the social-based search was more used than this automated recommendation. What I'm really curious about hearing about this is this paper that came out in the 60s or 70s. I think it's called The Structuralist, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, which is about how when you don't have clear governance rules and you don't have clear set of this is how our community works, you end up with tyrannical systems where there's, say, a BDFM, right? Benevolent dictator for life who can then cause really annoying, toxic behavior. And so one of the things I'm curious about, we're talking about, you know, social search can help improve things. But do you have any suggestions for how to help open source projects where all of the social network is in one person to how to help them write it down better or how to better notice when there's information disfluency like clustered around some people who may be tyrannically structuralist? What do you think? 
Let me try to decompose this question because I'm not familiar with yeah. that paper you mentioned. But I think you're more referring to a scenario where in social next term, we may call it some kind of echo chamber, meaning that uh, the information diffuses in a small circle and it never gets out. So people from the outside doesn't know much about the inside community and also the inside community doesn't know much about outside. Is that close? What I'm talking about is when there's a gap between people who are in charge and know a lot and people who are not in don't know a lot. And it's really difficult in open source projects when this doesn't just happen for technical reasons, but when it happens for governance reasons, who has the right to be the admin, who has the right to invoice for things, who has the right to decide on how the project is moving forward. When you don't have these things written down and there's not clear structures for the community, you end up with people not knowing where to find that information, that information never getting put anywhere. And then the majority of contributors or users being left out of any positions of power in the open source community, which has long-term delegation serious effects downstream. So that's more the information gap I was talking about. Does that help? Yeah. So first of all, if that's the case, I probably want to send a message to the people at the higher up in the hierarchy first. We have a ton of research support that this is actually very detrimental to the success of the project and to the sustainability of the entire community. There has been research showing that, for example, if you have this kind of very centralized hierarchy in terms of the overall management structure, this network is not going to be very sustainable and robust, meaning that if something happened to the core developers, like this developer leave for some reason, the entire community basically collapsed. And it's actually more than that because we also have research shows that even if we don't consider developer turnover or disengagement, still we just think about whether the team can have an effective performance in terms of building high quality software or building software that can be most useful to the others. We also find that having more people involved in the design part or in the management part of the software overall is beneficial compared to like only one person dominates the entire management process and others people are taking instructions. So first message to the maintainers of people at the top that I think this, uh, this is definitely a bad practice and you should consider not doing that. And from a community perspective, how we can maintain it. So I don't have a very clear idea at this moment, but one thing I can think of is to have different channels of communication. So one thing I find is that for people, even with the same set of people, that they have different norms and they have different uh, ways of communication on different platforms. And they even talk to different peoples on different platforms. So one suggestion for them is that if you have a platform, if you have a project that you think you might have this too centralized management structure, you can try to bring the project-related discussions to multiple platforms. For example, you can have project-related discussions on Reddit, have the discussion on Twitter, have the discussion on GitHub, for example. So the thing is, for those different platforms, because different platforms have different features and you tend to discuss different things. For example, on GitHub, discussion tend to center around pull requests or issues because that's the things GitHub support. But for Twitter, because you can write a different kind of message, you can write a short message and you cannot easily refer to a specific Git specific pull request or issue. So you talk about different things and that's an opportunity to encourage different kind of discussion. It can be discussions about different topics or there can be discussions between different peoples. So if you have discussions from multiple channels or multiple platforms talking about the same project, you might be able to foster like more cohesive discussion in the overall set of people. 
I love that. I've never thought of that before, but fragmenting your avenues of discussion can help. Unfortunately, we are definitely late on time. I should never interview academics on this podcast because academia, like the work is like, oh, we should talk about this and this and this and this and this paper and this paper. And then it's like, oh no, it's over. Sorry. Thank you so much for coming on, Courtney and Hong Bo. For listeners, they can find you on Twitter at Courtney Elta, E-L-T-A, and that's Courtney with an E-Y, or Hongbo on at Fong underscore Hongbo. And I'm curious, is there, are you open to emails about more of this work? Do you have other stuff that you want to say people should definitely follow me here? What other avenues do you think it would be good? Courtney? Yeah, my DMs are always open on Twitter. So I'm always happy to continue conversations on there. Our emails are on the paper if anyone's interested in reaching out with any questions. Yeah, we're always very excited, especially if you are a maintainer and you have some ideas about this or you have any questions about the paper because you're like, oh, I think this other extension would be super cool and you want to bounce some ideas. I'm always very happy to have conversations with people. Yes, the same to me as well. You can message me on Twitter or LinkedIn or on email. I'm very happy to all kinds of discussions. One fun fact to share that I have never been an open source developer before and I don't do any open source related research before my PhD. So I, I always feel like I'm a newcomer to open source community. So I'm very excited that you know more about what's going on in this community and know more open source developers. And hopefully we can have wonderful discussions. Having been in this community for 10, 15 years, don't worry, that sense of being new and not understanding anything never goes away. For those of you who are curious, go check out, did you miss my comment or what? Understanding toxicity in open source discussions. That is the paper which we've been discussing today. Courtney and Hongwo, thank you so much again. But before you go, we can't forget Spotlight. Spotlight's part of the show where we talk about things or people or projects which are not ours, which are really cool, which have helped us out in our careers. This is the fun bit. Thank you for bearing through an hour of really boring conversation wasn't boring. It's real cool. You again so much. This is great. Errol, what is your spotlight today? Oh, my spotlight is along the lines of how to protect yourself online if you're somehow the target of toxicity or harassment. I am spotlighting Digital Safety Snacks by PEN America. It's a series of resources and I believe a series of workshops, digital workshops that you can attend on how to detox yourself, on how to secure your social media profiles. And it's all, I believe it's all free. And thank you to PEN America for giving us loads of resources on how to keep ourselves safe online. Nice. Thank you. Mine is an article that I read recently, which is just a really great article. I'm also realizing I maybe shouldn't have been sarcastic three seconds ago because it's an example of the kind of thing this article is against. So it's called The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, which I really, really like because we talk about how our culture is really poor, but we don't talk about how to fix it. And in particular, Nora Samaran goes into details about how men don't often talk to other men about how they can best nurture other people. And we sort of offload that onto women all of the time. Speaking as a man here. So I would highly suggest if you subscribe to Masculine Identity in any way, this might be a good article for you. It was a good one for me. So thank you so much, Nora, for writing it. Hongbo, what is your spotlight today? I think I can recommend a book that I always read. This is actually the first book I read related to open source and also the book my advisor recommend me to read as my guidance into open source community. But this is a road bridge book and this talks about the sustainability of open source project overall the history of open source projects and why some projects, even though they are well-known and widely used, not well and properly maintained, and what are the potential solutions to those kind of problems. 
I think this is comprehensive review of the sustainability problem in open source communities and what are the ways or solutions we can have to this kind of problem. Love it. Great to have another recommendation for Roads and Bridges by Nadia Eggball. We've also had on the podcast. If you haven't read it yet, go check it out and read it. It's a really awesome book. Hongo, great suggestion. Courtney, what's your spotlight? Yeah, so I have my spotlight, but then since Hongo said that, I have to also say if you're reading that and you think it's cool and you happen to have like never heard of Nadia before, which would be crazy because I'm obsessed with her, but working in public, I read that book through and through at least once a semester because I'm like, how does open source work again? And I think it's really cool. But my actual highlight is this really cool open source project. It's called leopard-ai slash Betty. The tool is just called Betty. It's a PyTorch library that provides this really cool and handy, like unified programming interface for a bunch of generalized meta-learning and multi-level optimization applications. Might sound a little bit random, but the creator of its song is a fellow PhD student with us at Carnegie Mellon. He's in the Language Technology Institute. He also happens to be my neighbor. And I thought that this is a really cool project because it was really awesome to see how like a homegrown but very useful project arises from someone who has one problem that is super annoying to them, like having to manually start 30 cores when you're trying to do some ML thing. And then he built a tool to solve that problem, published it, and now it's helping a lot of other people with that problem. So I think it's just, it's a really awesome tool. If you do any sort of generalized meta-learning with PyTorch, I would highly recommend checking it out. And I think that I just found it personally like a refreshing kind of story to be able to watch its creation. And also it's called Betty after his Bernie Doodle, Betty, who my dog Chanel loves to play with all the time. So 10 out of 10 would recommend. Awesome. Dogs are the best. Thank you both so much for coming on. Again, it's been really great to have you. Listeners, if you like this episode, please like it on Apple, Spotify, and the like, wherever you got this podcast. That really helps us out. If you have any thoughts on it, please email us at podcast.sustainos.org. That goes to all the hosts of the podcast. We're happy to field anything. We're also happy to send emails on to Courtney and Hongbo. So feel free to do that if you like. If you want to discuss this further, we also have a discourse forum, discourse.sustainos.org. We can talk more about things with other cool people who also like to talk about things that are about sustainability. It's kind of really fun. If you have other comments and you think there might be other potential hosts that you want to be on this podcast, please get in touch. That would be really great. I think those are all of the line items at the end. And I was trying to wrap up as fast as I can because we are definitely over time. But that's because this was such a great conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. It was great. Courtney and Hongbo, take care. Thank you.